Now let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 5. That was good singing tonight. I can tell you're really enjoying singing. And I think that that's the sign of a, of a church whose people walk with God. You can't help but sing when the Holy Spirit is uh, dominating your life. You know, music is just part of it. It bubbles out. And uh, even if it's just a joyful noise or a foot stomping like John was doing up here on the, the stage during that uh, offertory. I didn't, don't know if you noticed, I moved my feet back under the chair just to protect them lest he should really get excited. And uh, maybe you didn't know before that John did direct music for a period of time in a Jewish temple. That's why they have named him John Benham. You see, uh, the son of Ham. Lots of Ham. Time to stop, right? <laughs> he gets a turn now and then too, so, uh, you know, turnabout's fair play. John chapter 5, we're going to look there tonight to begin our message on the resurrection of the dead. The hope of the resurrection of the body beats within the breast of everyone who has ever placed the body of a loved one in the grave. In John chapter 5, we have a word of the Lord Jesus regarding this matter. He says, beginning in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. Let's bow together. Father, I pray that now as we look into your word, the Spirit of God who inspired the writing of these words so that we today might have an authoritative final voice from you, would illuminate our hearts and open our understanding to them and to this great truth that we look at this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus said, An hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. That is the age in which you and I live. And the resurrection that seems to be in view here is not the physical resurrection, but it is the spiritual resurrection of one who, having been dead in trespasses and sins, trusts the Lord Jesus Christ and is spiritually brought to life. An hour is coming, he says, and now is when that will take place. But in verse 28, he says, an hour is coming. And notice he does not say, and now is. 
But he says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. There is no question but that in verse 29 he speaks of the physical resurrection of every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Now our theme tonight is going to be the physical resurrection of the body. Of course, spiritual resurrection is a wonderful truth. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says in Ephesians chapter 2, He has quickened, He has brought us to life in Jesus Christ, so that now we are alive in Him spiritually. No longer are we in the death of sin, but we are in the life of the Son. But even we who are alive in the Son may one day die physically and our bodies be put into a grave. What this message tonight is going to deal primarily with is the blessed hope that we have that though we may die and our bodies be planted, we will be resurrected. This is not only a New Testament doctrine. The hope of the resurrection has always been a part of the faith of God's people. We see this, for example, in the book of Job and the 19th chapter. I'd like for you to turn quickly to several Old Testament passages as we see that even throughout the centuries before the coming of Christ, there was the belief in the resurrection of the dead. Job chapter 19. Uh, Just when the book of Job was written is uncertain. Conservative, Bible-believing scholars debate that issue. Personally, I believe that it was written close to the time when Job lived, but some date it later than that. Job lived, it would seem from the content of the book, about the time of Abraham, the patriarchal age about 2000 B.C. And notice the words that are attributed to Job by the Holy Spirit as he inspires the writer of this book. In the verse, uh, verse 25 of the 19th chapter, And as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, says Job, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, Now this is an amazing statement for a man who did not have a word of written revelation from God. Nothing had been written to this point, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nothing of the Bible that you have in your hands was present for Job to read and to study for him to base his faith on. But what Job did have was the oral transmission passed down from generation to generation of godly families regarding what God had said. It is that information that causes Job to spring forth with this great statement of affirmation. Now he goes on to say in verse 26, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh... I shall see God. 
Here he affirms his belief in the resurrection. And though all of life in its circumstances be turned against him, as it happened at this point, and even though he himself, critically ill with affliction, even though he himself die, he says, from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. My heart faints within me. What he means by that last statement is, I'm just overwhelmed by this. He says, this is just too much for me to ponder that truth. And so we see that Job believed in the resurrection. Abraham, who was a contemporary of Job, likewise believed in the resurrection. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 19, the writer there records that Abraham believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead. So he believed in the resurrection and the implication, a rather quick resurrection, of his son Isaac. Now, not only the patriarchs believed in the resurrection, but the prophets of God who spoke for him to ancient Israel likewise spoke of the resurrection of the dead. I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah and the 26th chapter of Isaiah. Look then at the 19th verse where he says, To the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, where he says to them, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. To lie in the dust was a phrase meaning to lie down in death. Awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits, he says. And then turn to the book of Daniel. A man who followed Isaiah by some years. Right after the book of Ezekiel. Daniel and the twelfth chapter of his prophecy. He says in verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so basically what Daniel says here parallels the statement of Jesus that we read in John 5, that in the physical resurrection there will be those who will be raised to life, everlasting life and blessing, and there will be those raised to judgment, or as Daniel puts it here, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then the book closes with this special personal word to Daniel. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. And so to Daniel as an individual, this word from God comes, go your way, you will die 
but you will be raised from the dead so that you may share in the glory of the people of God that you've written about in your prophecy. And so the prophets revealed the truth of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Likewise, we see the resurrection in miracles that occurred in the Old Testament. Elisha, for example, was involved in the resurrection of two individuals. You recall he had dealings for a time with a Shunammite woman who was very kind for him and cared for him. And as a result of that, he asked her what she would desire as a favor from him because of the kindness that she and her husband had shown to him. And she responded by saying certain things, and he said, well, you're going to have a son in a year. And she basically said, oh, cut it out. Don't lie to me. Quit teasing me. But that's what Elisha said. And you know, in a year, this woman had a son. She held a son in her arms. And the boy grew up, the text there says in 2 Kings chapter 4. And uh, the boy one day went out to see his father in the field. And apparently, it was a very hot day, and the lad had what we might call a heat stroke. And he was very ill. They took him to his mother, and he died in his mother's arms. A very sad, heartbreaking picture. And she immediately then left to go find Elisha. And the story goes on that Elisha knelt down over the boy pressed his body against the boy's body and prayed. And the body began to warm. Now, the boy had been dead several hours by this time. And then it says he got up and he walked around, probably from anticipation, you know. Something marvelous is going to happen. And he did it again, and the boy sneezed seven times. I believe it says seven times. And then he awoke and came back from the dead. Eventually, at the close of his ministry, Elisha died and he was buried in a certain place. And sometime after that, a man died and his friends were going to bury him and they encountered a band of marauders from their neighbors who were attacking them at that point. And they had to get rid of the body quick. And so they just sort of dumped the body into the sepulcher where Elisha's body was. And the Bible says that when that man's body touched Elisha's body, that man was resurrected from the dead. Probably as a sign to the king that God was going to give them victory in that time. You see, resurrection occurred in the Old Testament. Now, those people resurrected died again. It was not a resurrection in a body that would never die, but they were brought back to life and then experienced ultimately uh, another death, physical death. But resurrection was, on occasion, the experience of people in the Old Testament. And then our Savior, of course, spoke about resurrection, as we have seen in John chapter 5. Perhaps the most amazing statement he ever made was there beside that tomb of his friend Lazarus. When he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He had said to Mary, do you believe your brother will rise again? 
She believed in the resurrection. She said, yes, Lord, at the last day, you know, way yonder, down the road, someday, he's going to rise again. And then Jesus said to her, and it just sends chills through my body to, to imagine him saying this to her, resurrection stands before you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then, of course, he proved that he was resurrection life incarnate by calling Lazarus forth from the grave. And there were others that Jesus resurrected. Well, I want to spend the rest of our time tonight thinking regarding our own resurrection from the dead and the resurrection of those whom we love and who have gone to be with Christ. I would like for you to turn with me into the New Testament first to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is often called the resurrection chapter because it deals with this doctrine of the resurrection. This is a doctrine that has, from the beginning, been under attack from various quarters. And it's under attack by those today who say that this life is all there is. There isn't any more after this. Now the Apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that in fact this is not all there is. He says in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now first fruits is a term strange to most of us, but it was very familiar to the Jewish readers of Paul's epistle, the people in that day. For the first fruits were the first produce received from the fields. In the Jewish offerings, these were a part of their sacrificial system. The first fruits were offered to God. And the reason that the first fruits were was because this indicated that all the rest of the harvest that was to come likewise belonged to him. But the offerer was saying, God, you have priority in my life. The very first of my field I bring to you though it represents it all. Now what it says here is that the Lord Jesus is the first fruits of those who are asleep. That is a metaphor or picture of those who have died in Christ. In other words, when he was raised from the dead, he was raised on behalf of, as representative of, all of those who die in him. He is, as the Ryrie Study Bible puts it, the earnest or prototype of resurrections to come. Now he goes on to say, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, we die because of of our sin, because of Adam's sin, that brought death to the human race. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now I do not take that to mean that it means only all believers shall be made alive, but in a broader sense, even as the first part of the verse is in a broader sense. 
For it is through Jesus Christ that all will eventually be resurrected, some to life and some to judgment. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, number one. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end. Some people put that, then come the end ones, those who are to be resurrected following that. When he delivers up the kingdom to, the, to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now the point that we're making here is this, that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ guarantees that every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth will one day stand before God in a resurrection. Not all at the same time, as it makes it clear, each in his own order or time. But eventually all will stand before him resurrected. Now, Revelation chapter 20, where we have spent a little bit of time in recent weeks, elaborates a bit more upon this matter of the future resurrection. Would you turn there with me, but don't lose 1 Corinthians 15. We're coming back. Revelation chapter 20. There are actually two resurrections to come. There is what is called the first resurrection, as it is named here. It is important to keep in mind that the first resurrection, that of the righteous to life, does not all take place at the same time. In fact, there seem to be two phases of that resurrection. First, there is the resurrection of the dead in Christ in this age at the rapture of the church. That's phase one of the first resurrection. Phase two takes place a little bit later, several years later, before the Lord Jesus Christ begins his millennial reign. At that time, all of the rest of the righteous dead are raised. In the first phase, only the church, those who have died in Christ in this age, but not the patriarchs, not the prophets, not the godly people of the Old Testament, not even John the Baptist. Those people will be resurrected later, just prior to the initiation of the millennial reign of Christ. It says in verse 4, And I saw thrones... And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. Now, when you look at those phrases in verse 4, they identify a particular group of people. That is, those people who have died righteous as believers in the tribulation period. Now it says about them, And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
Now, of course, there are those who allegorize this, who say that it somehow represents a spiritual resurrection, that there's nothing literal to be taken here in these verses. I strongly disagree with that. I believe that a thousand years means a thousand years. And that prior to that thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, those righteous people who have given their lives, who have died in the tribulation period, after the rapture of the church now, they're not a part of the church, but they are righteous people who died in the tribulation period, they will be resurrected to share in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is where we also plug in the Old Testament saints. David, for example, who was promised that he would have a seed who would reign on the throne after him. David and those of the godly people of Israel and the godly people before Abraham, who are certainly not a part of Israel, but were godly people, they will be resurrected at this time to be a part of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then it says in verse 5, the rest of the dead, who are they? They are the unrighteous dead, the lost, those who are in hell. He says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now when that thousand year reign of Christ has been consummated and completed, there is again a rebellion on the earth against the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to go into that in a later message, so I won't say more about it now. That will be followed. That will be followed by the resurrection of those who are lost and the final judgment of all of the unsaved of all time. They will be resurrected, not in a body like we will have, like Christ's body, but nonetheless a body which it would appear they will inhabit in their suffering forever. For it says in verses 11 through 15, that they are brought before God, the dead, the great, the small, verse 12, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. This is not believers now. This is not the church here. This is not the righteous people of the Old Testament. These are not the saved people in the tribulation period. But these are the unsaved dead who are now brought back to life for a period of time to be judged by God at what is called the great white throne. And it says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, not to see if any of them might be saved. That's not the purpose. But the purpose in view here, sad as it is, is that their final determination of suffering might be measured. For you see, now the full impact of their ungodly lives can be measured. Not until the end of time is their judgment possible. God did not give Hitler his final judgment when he committed suicide in that bunker 
1945. Hitler, because of his wickedness, is in hell tonight. That person is there in suffering. But he will be brought back to stand before God at this second resurrection. And the purpose will be to fully measure the evil and the, the wickedness of his life as it has been carried down through the generations since he died. And on that day, when he is brought back to life and along with him all of the unsaved, the full measurement, the full weight of their sin will be measured. And then their judgment will be meted out. And it says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the second death. Thank God that the second death has no power over any of his. We are forever delivered from that judgment. But oh, the awful fate awaiting those who are outside of Jesus Christ and who die lost and apart from him. Now would you go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we bring the message to a close because one of the questions that often is asked is what kind of a body will my loved one have? What kind of a body will I have in the resurrection? What will I look like are there some changes you want to make? Well, I think all of us could uh, probably suggest some changes that we'd like to see. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul gives us some answers which are very tantalizing to our imagination. I begin in verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do, not, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. What he is saying here, he's going to agriculture, and he says, look, when you are going to plant wheat, you don't plant the wheat stalk, you plant just the bare grain. You put that in the ground, that grain dies, it germinates, and it brings forth a stalk. Now, it comes from that seed, but it's a plant. It's the same thing, but it's different. It's not identical to what you put in the ground, but it's identifiable. You planted a wheat seed, now a wheat stalk comes forth from that. So it's not exactly the same, but it's identifiable as the same the same thing. He says, But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men, another of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. A good piece of chicken does not taste like walleye, and uh, a beefsteak doesn't taste like a pork roast. He's saying God has given different flesh to different animals. All flesh is not the same, though it's flesh. And he says there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, 
another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars. A star differs from star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And now he uses some couplets which help us get a better handle. He says, it is sown, that is the body, it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Our present bodies perish. Our present bodies are subject to constant change and decay, as we said this morning, the wrinkles that come to us. But he says the resurrection body is a permanent body. It is changed once and for all, our bodies, to be like Christ's body, an incorruptible, imperishable body. The word incorruption or imperishable means not capable of deterioration. Now the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago. If he were to stand here before us tonight and manifest himself in his resurrection body, he would not look one whit different than he did 2,000 years ago. For that body does not age, it does not decay or deteriorate. It is an imperishable body. It is permanent, unlike the bodies we have now. He goes on to say, It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now God honored our bodies originally with his image. But that image was marred by the fall and the sin. No longer do our present bodies fully reflect God's glory, nor can we appreciate God's glory in our present bodies. Our bodies at the present time are dishonorable bodies in that sense. It does not mean that our bodies are sinful. But the honor that our bodies once knew before the fall into sin is no longer there. But he says, that body, the resurrection body, will perfectly reflect God's glory and will be able to appreciate it perfectly because it is raised in glory. He says it is sown in weakness. Our present body is limited. And the way we treat it sometimes can cause it to be even more weak than it might be. And that weakness that we have and which grows uh, culminates ultimately in physical death. I suppose that most of us have at some time seen a body uh, in a casket, perhaps even uh, before the body has been taken by an undertaker. I remember one time being called at the church office in Kentucky and being told that one of our members had just died. His son had been taking a nap. His son was a teenager, had been taking a nap in another room and walked back in the living room and there sat his father in the chair as though he were still watching television, but he was gone. And when I went, there this gentleman sat in the chair just like he was asleep there, but completely weak. He was gone. The body is weak. It is sown in weakness. And ultimately the hands are folded across the chest in weakness. But the resurrection body, it says, is raised in power. 
That resurrection body, as I suggested this morning, is not dependent upon food or exercise or sleep. It's capable, I suppose, of all of those things, but it's not dependent upon them. That resurrection body is not subject to natural laws like our present body. They are material bodies, flesh and bone, Jesus said, but they are bodies which can dissolve into thin air and disappear at the same time. Our present bodies are sown in the grave in weakness. They collapse. But the resurrection body is a body of eternal power and energy. And then he says, it is sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. The word natural here is the Greek word suke, which is the soul. In other words, our present body is centered around our soul. That part of us that responds to our environment the emotions, the intellect, the will. Our present body responds to the desires of the soul. That body will be a body that will be primarily focused around and responsive to our spirit. I am making a distinction between soul and spirit here, though that is difficult to do. But that spirit of us is that God-conscious part, that part of us that can know God, the part that is dead in the sinner, that comes to life in regeneration. The resurrection body will not be a body that is primarily focused upon that soulish part of us, but rather upon the spiritual part of us. It will be a vessel in which the spirit dominates. It will be a body made to perfectly serve God. And now he goes on to say, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Here he goes back to quote from Genesis chapter 2. But notice he says, the last Adam. Who is that? Well, that's Christ. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Notice the first Adam became a living soul himself. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is life-giving. He has power. He is the one who will give us this new body. He says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. In other words, Adam came first, and then Christ. The first man is from the earth. What was Adam made of? Therefore, he's earthly. The second man is from heaven. That's Christ. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. Now, that's all of us in the physical sense. But he says, as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. That's not everybody, but that's believers. In other words, one day we will be like him, the second man from heaven. He goes on to say, and just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that is Adam's image, we also shall bear the image of the heavenly, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 50, and this is one verse that has meant a great deal to me in the last six weeks. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You know what? You're never going to get to heaven the way you are. 
and neither am I. Something has to happen to us. Either physical death and then resurrection, or the change that will take place at the rapture, which he describes beginning in verse 51. Something must happen to the body in which you and I live, for it is like that grain of wheat that is bare and alone. Something has to happen to change it so that that body can appreciate heaven. Something has to change us so that we will be incorruptible and imperishable. This flesh and blood that you and I live in now will never walk the streets of gold. We only walk asphalt and cement and earth, but never gold. Because we have to have a body like Christ's, a body of glory, a spiritual body, to enjoy the kingdom of God. And that is, my friend, the destiny of every one of us who knows Jesus Christ. We will have a body in the resurrection that can fully enjoy all that God has prepared for those who love him. How can we go to the graveside and place into the ground the body of someone that we love? How can we there at that graveside sing hymns of hope and assurance? How can we gather together in a funeral service or a memorial service and celebrate we can do that because that one to whom we have said goodbye will be seen again. You say, well, if it's not going to be exactly the same body, will I know my loved one? Absolutely. When you plant a grain of corn in the ground, do you know that that's a corn stalk when it comes up? You identify it, don't you? Or wheat. Likewise, that body that you have, as it were, planted in the grave, though it will be changed, it will not be identically the same body. It will be identifiable in some way as exactly the same person that you knew and loved here in this world. After I got back from the trip that we took last month to bury my mother, Hugo Hegstrom stopped by one day at the office. I think most of you know Hugo, or at least you've seen him here. He is the gentleman who comes wheeling his wife in the wheelchair. They sit right down here on Sunday mornings. By the way, when I think about a husband who loves his wife... I don't know of a better example than that gentleman and the love that he has shown her in the two and a half years since her incapacitating stroke. But Hugo stopped by to see me at the office. And we chatted for a while. And he said, well, I want to tell you about my mother. And he told me how many years it had been since she passed away. She was a wonderful Christian. 
And he said, you know, my mother was lying on her deathbed. And we all knew the time was short. The children were all gathered around. And he said she was restless. She had to get up and then she got back in bed, though she was very weak, had to have help. And he said she just seemed to be slipping slowly and slowly and slowly away. And all of a sudden, he said, she began to have strength. And looking, he said, with open eyes, beyond us who were standing there at the bedside. She exclaimed, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. And she slumped and was gone. I can't tell you how that comforted my soul, him sharing that experience. That doesn't happen too often anymore because people are so often sedated by medication at that point. I could only imagine what my mother experienced in that instant when the coronary called her out of her body. And then Hugo told me about his grandmother. He said, uh, my grandmother likewise was on her deathbed. And my mother and others, he said, were gathered around her. This was many years ago now. And he said, as she was fading, she suddenly picked up a towel that was on the bed. And she began waving it. Now you may wonder what that's all about. But the older people here know that that's how you used to wave hello to people. In fact, if you've been in, uh, in Europe, along the line that divides east and west, 